Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling the helmet that endures. I want you to imagine for a moment with me what the players from the National Football League would look like if they all wore cardboard helmets. It wouldn't be pretty, would it? There'd be a lot of blood on the field. There'd be a lot more timeouts. There'd be a lot more game delays. And there'd be a lot more opportunities to call for the stretcher. There would be concussions and contusions and abrasions and confusion. It'd be a mess out there. They'd be falling apart. Most of the players, if not all, would prematurely call it quits. Now, I want you to hear my heart on this thing here because I said, what do you mean, Lord? He said to me this, he says, not because they've lost their love for the game, but just simply because it became too hard on the body. And those that endured would eventually be cut by their own coaches because they would just say, hey, you're not young enough, you're not fast enough, you're not smart enough. Most of them would be cut by their own uh, coaches. In other words, with the words, if they didn't use them, you're disqualified. The performance-based gospel of Christianity is hard on the body, the body of Christ. It's left believers feeling like they don't contribute to, you want to call it a heavenly team? You can call it that. We talk so much in this ministry about resting, and I want to clarify this this morning. We always talk about resting, and that is the message of Jesus. It's the message that we preach as well, that we need to rest. Jesus said it himself in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, 30, when he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said it, didn't he? He said, listen, I've got one way to solve that problem that you've got. Just come to me. He said, take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul. There he said it again. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So the message of Jesus has always been about rest, but what we're talking about is from the spirit man. We're made up of three components, the spirit, the soul, and the body, and Jesus is always saying, listen, rest in your spirit. What I want you to do is I want you to work out of your spirit, into your soul, into your body, this finished work of the cross. That it is a finished work, and you don't have to contribute to salvation. (laughs) Jesus did it all. He paid the whole price. What I'm saying is that we're not all in retirement, okay? I love ministry. I'm 20 years old in Jesus, and I've known nothing but ministry from day one. I love ministry. And so when I say rest, I'm not talking about from the standpoint that we do nothing for God. But what I'm saying is our identity. Let me just talk about me for a second. My identity is not wrapped up in ministry. My identity is not in what I do. My identity is in Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. That's where my identity's at. Is your identity in Jesus? I sure hope so. But as I was thinking about this last night, I was flashback. I've been in sales since 1979. That's 36 years that I've been selling. In the early 80s, I listened to a man by the name of Anthony Hopkins. I wanted to learn some more sales techniques. I was just really young. And he said something that was really kind of corny then, and it seems kind of corny now, but here's what he said. He said, empty the coins from your purse into your mind, and your mind will fill your purse with coins. What is he saying? What he's saying is take some of the money that God's given you and invest that in understanding God. And what does that look like exactly? That's why we promote Karis Bible College. We'll graduate this coming May. We went at it part-time, so it took us four years to do it. If you want to go full-time, it'll take you two. 
but empty part of what you've got and sow it back into your heart, sow it back into your mind. Several years ago at the former church we were at, we took the Dave Ramsey course. Dave Ramsey is called Financial Peace University. And one of these days we're going to have it here too. It's a 10-week course that you hold, usually in the evenings. But it teaches you how to be a good steward with your finances. And I remember we hadn't gotten many weeks into that course, two or three weeks, and I was just mad at debt. I was paying off everything like a crazy man. My wife's like, what are you doing? Just paid off that car. What are you doing now? Just paid off that credit card. I mean, the principles made sense. And he uses all biblical principles. And so when we're saying, listen, I want to say something. Everyone in here ought to have Joseph Prince's book, Destined to Reign. You need that book. You need to understand this message of grace, this unconditional love of God. When I think about even going to school for four years, and I, there's no way to measure what it does for you. I mean, you can see certain ways how it changes you, but you can't always measure it. The truth of the matter is, this is a profound statement. If you took a thimble full of water and you poured it in the ocean, the truth of the matter is the ocean would rise. You know why? Because you just added to it what was already there. You would never be able to see it with the naked eye. But you can't add something to something and not have it increase. Now it might be one quadrillionth of an inch, but it just changed. And so it is when you sit under the message of grace. It's, it's this constant drip, this constant, Jesus is good, God is good. Je- see, I just showed you, Jesus is good again. It's that constant message of love and grace, and it's changing you more than what you ever know. About two months ago, I was asking the Lord. I said to the Lord one day, I said, Lord, would we still be okay if I never preached another message as long as I lived? That's a rhetorical question, you know, but do you ever do that with God? You already know the answer, but you still want to ask Him. I said, were we okay if I never preached another message? And He said, yes, son, we're okay. I said, thank you, Daddy. I believe I'll preach for the rest of my life. You don't see, because I'm not under a law. If I'm under a law, it's the law of love. I'm not doing it because God said, that's the way it is. You're going to do this for me. God says, you get to do this. And it thrills me that I get to do this for God and get to do this for the kingdom of God. When I was growing up, I loved Adrian Rogers, the late and great Adrian Rogers, the Baptist preacher from Tennessee. And I remember one time he was, t- he was preaching in his church. He told the story of the first time he got a chance to preach. And when he gave that altar call, he said dozens of people came forth and got saved. He was so thrilled about that, that this really works. When you preach the gospel, people get saved. He was just so happy about this. And so he was telling his friend about this. Like, buddy, he said, wasn't that awesome when I preached today and all these people came forward and got saved? He said, yeah, that was awesome. He said, I want you to know something. He said, I was talking to my mother this morning and she told me, She stayed up all night long praying for you that it would go well and that many people would be saved. He said it was like someone took a pin and bursted his bubble. Amen. He fell apart, didn't he? Like a cardboard helmet. Many Christians have quit going to church and reading their Bibles and praying. And the question becomes why? Why? Now maybe not everybody in your family and your influence of friends has done that. I know a lot of people. I know a lot of people that used to go to church. I know a lot of people that used to preach. I know a lot of people that used to pray. 
and they've quit doing that. It's not because they fell out of love with Jesus. Don't, I want you to hear my heart. It's not because they fell out of love with Jesus. It's because some pastor came along, or some evangelist, or prophet, or teacher, and he put a cardboard helmet of religion on them, and it fell apart, and their lives fell apart. They didn't quit because they fell out of love with Jesus. The demands of the law were too hard on the body, and they felt that their constant failures disqualified them. The same reason the football players would have felt that way. Let me tell you something, friends. There's one thing that qualifies us. There's one thing that crucifies us. There's one thing that justifies us. There's one thing that sanctifies us. And there's one thing that glorifies us, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. That and that alone qualifies us. It's the blood of Jesus. The same blood that rolled down his broken and bloody and bruised body. And it soaked into that old rugged cross. And then it had the audacity to drip down into the soil of Mount Calvary. And the soil licked up his blood. Religion and performance-based Christianity has turned people off. And the demands of the law have been exasperating. I remember years ago, I worked in the transportation ministry for my, for my church in Beloit. And I'd go out and get kids, I mean, all over the neighborhood. Man, I, I, I believed in bringing kids to church. And I'd go out and get all these little children. There was four of them coming from this one particular family, two boys and two girls, real cute kids. And so I asked him one day on the way home, I said, I never see your mom and dad. Do you live with your mom and dad? No, we live with our mom. Your dad's not in the home? Nope, dad's not in the home. So I thought, maybe I have a little conversation with the mom one day. And uh, I knocked on the door when I was dropping them off, and the mom came to the door. And I introduced myself and told her what a delight it was to bring her children to church and thanked her for that. But I said, I'd like you to come and sit with them. And then she began to tell me the story with tears. She said, I've got to take you back. She said, a few years ago, I was married to a man who went and got saved. She said, she, he said he asked Jesus to come into his heart. And then what he did is he wanted me to get saved, and I kept telling him, I'm not ready yet. But he insisted I get saved. She said, I'm not ready for it yet. <laughs> and so she said he set down two chairs, one across from the other, and he would make me listen to him read the Bible for hours. And she said I would get very, very tired. And she said just about the time I would start to nod off, she said I would feel this Bible hit me over the head very hard, and he would make me wake up and listen to more reading. Can you believe something like that could even be happening out there? My wife three weeks ago preached a message called Beautiful Warrior. And then last week she preached a message called Beautiful Fight. Two awesome messages that she preached. Last week when she was preaching Beautiful Fight, I was sitting back there at the soundboard and my nine-year-old grandson was coloring. And I just happened to glance down at him and he was looking through the coloring book and he got to about the middle of the coloring book. On each side of the page, a much younger colorer got to it before he did. <laughs> It looked more like a beautiful fight than it did a beautiful photo. But the amazing thing was, he continually looked at it. He looked at that side, he looked at that side. There was really nothing he could do to it. And I thought, I couldn't help but think, because he looked at it so long, I kept thinking, what is he looking at? And in my heart, I, I felt the Lord say, he is even in his little mind going, that could have been a beautiful picture if someone had got to it before me like this. It could have been a beautiful picture and so it was with that lady, that lady that was beat over the head. She could have been made a beautiful warrior with the message of grace. Instead, she ended up a battered wife. It's the difference in the messages. 
And the message of grace, God's unconditional love and His acceptance. We're accepted, the Bible says, in the Beloved. We're accepted in Christ. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the Bible says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with us? Does this mean anything to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? In other words, we say it, it's the goodness of the Lord that causes a man to repent. It's, this is just another translation. It says, can't you see that His kindness, it's His kindness, it's His grace, that means grace, it's His grace that's intended to turn you from your sin. I like how David said it, kind of a similar way in Psalm chapter 27, verse 13. He says, I would have despaired unless... He said, I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You know what? That's what we do at Triumphant Grace Ministries. You are the land of the living. What are you made out of? You're made out of ground. You're made out of dirt. You're made out of land. And we come and we take God's message of His goodness and His grace and His love and we sow it into the land of the living. And David said, I would have despaired if I couldn't get a picture of this. And you know what? I feel the same way, David. I'd despair too if I couldn't sow it into the land of the living. I got a phone call one day this past week as I was backing into the driveway at my house, minding my own business. A dear friend of mine called me from another state. He and I have been friends for years. And we were talking about different things. And there came a point in the conversation. He said, Mark, he said, when I tithe, he said, I'm blessed. He said, but when I don't, he said, I found over the years I'm cursed. He said, what do you think? You know what I was thinking? I was thinking, I really don't want to open this conversation up right now. I, I got things I really want to do. There's no short answer to this thing. But he asked me, all right, so I'm going to tell you. So I said to him, I'm familiar with what you're talking about. It comes out of Malachi chapter 3. I've been there many, many times. Malachi chapter 3 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord. But you say, wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? But you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Because he asked, how have we robbed you? He said, tithe is an offering. He said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house. And prove me now here with saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour you out such a blessing, you're not going to be able to receive it all. And he talks about, I'm going to rebuke the devourer for your name's sake. And you're going to be called a delightsome land. It's all, am I in the word? It's all in the word. I said, friends, th that is in the word. There's just one problem with that. That is Old Covenant. Malachi the prophet is the one who wrote that. That is in the Old Covenant, I said. And let me tell you something about the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, according to Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10, the Old Covenant has been done away with. Okay? And so, it's been rendered obsolete is what it says. And so I said to him, let's go back to verse 9, where it says, you are cursed with a curse. God said you're cursed with a curse. The, the priests were bringing in animals that weren't worthy of sacrificing. They had blemishes on them. They were robbing God. And he said, because of this, you're robbing me. He said, you're cursed with a curse. Several years ago, when I lived in Freeport, Illinois, they had these parking meters downtown. And then they passed an ordinance where they were not going to make you put coins in these parking meters to park. But the problem was they didn't take the coin meters out for like two or three years. 
So anybody that lived in that city knew you don't have to put coins in the meters. But anybody that came in that was not familiar with your city, guess what they were doing? They were still sticking coins in meters that they didn't have to. So it is with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant's in the Bible, so people go to the Bible and they go, listen, right there it is in the Bible. See, you haven't been given your tithe to God. You're cursed with a curse. Oh, wait a second now. We've got to fast forward nine books into the New Testament and see what God says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. I'm going to tell you something, bitter water and fresh water cannot flow from the same stream. I cannot be blessed and cursed at the same time. I told him, I said, listen, stop here for a second. I said, I am a huge proponent of tithing. I've been saved for 20 years, and there's not one year that has went by that I have not given more than 10%. I'm a huge proponent for giving. I want to propagate. You should give, but not based on law, based on love. And I could feel something changing in the atmosphere. I could hear the revelation begin to change in the atmosphere. Of Your motivation means everything. Why you do anything means everything to God. I said, I don't give because I have to give. I give because I see a need and I meet it. And I believe in the church. I believe in the church. How else are you going to get the message out unless you invest in the message and to get it out? Amen? And so the Lord took me to Abraham. Abraham lived before Moses. You know that, right? <laughs> Moses was the law giver. Abraham lived before Moses several hundred years. And Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis is going into Egypt because there's been a famine where he lives. So he's going to go into Egypt because he figures at least I'm going to get some meals over here. And when he's on his way in there, he comes to the realization, uh-oh, Sarah's a knockout. And when they see Sarah, they're gonna, the Pharaoh's going to want to take her into his harem. Hey, Sarah, I got an idea. How about we just let them know that you're my sister, okay? Because truthfully, she was his half-sister. But that's not what Abraham had in mind. Abraham had in mind saving his own life. How about we just tell them you're my sister? And so when they went in there, that's exactly what they did. And then Sarah was brought into the harem of this Pharaoh, this wicked Pharaoh. When Abraham handed over Sarah, do you know what Pharaoh did? He blessed Abraham with all kinds of stuff, cattle and donkeys and money. He gave Abraham all this wealth. And then in the night, suddenly diseases started breaking out on the Pharaoh and his people. The Pharaoh was smart enough to figure out, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> New man in town took this woman, and now all these diseases are breaking out. This wasn't the chicken pox. This was heavy-duty stuff. And he had enough savvy to understand, there's a curse that's fallen on me. And he summoned Abraham to come and said, what have you done? And Abraham tells him, you know. And he just says, listen, take your wife back and leave. Just go. But the amazing thing, and I really didn't see that till this morning when I was in the Word, the thing that he didn't do is he didn't ask for all the animals back. He didn't do that. See, I always thought when I read that, first of all, he gave him the animals and all the wealth when he said leave. But he gave him that right up front. Same thing Jesus does for us. He gives us right up front all the wealth. It's not about us working and accumulating wealth. 
He gives us all his riches, all his glory, all his anointing, all his love, all his power, all his faithfulness, all his anointing up front. And even when we've done something that's not right, it's wrong. It's wrong to lie. I get it. I totally get it. But guess what? He doesn't ask for it back because the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Abraham didn't even say sorry. I mean, wouldn't you at least think he said, hey, sorry about that, Pharaoh. I didn't know God was going to do that. He's, a, he's an awesome God, isn't he? I mean, he didn't even ask for it back. Didn't even say sorry. And so I told my friend these stories as God was ministering to me, and I, I believe he really began to get it. But the thing that I always want people to see is the difference between that old covenant and that new covenant. It, it changed everything. It changed everything. So when you're reading the Old Testament, and I'm in there a lot, Old Testament, love the Old Testament, but I understand where my dividing line's at. I understand who I am in Christ. There is no curse that can come upon me. I've got it all right up front. There's nothing I'm looking for. I've got it all. This wristwatch right here, cheap watch. But you know what? Even when it's broke, I found out it's right twice a day. And it quit working this week, about Tuesday. I've just been so busy, I haven't even got a chance to go to the store and get a new battery. But I thought every morning, I've, I've wore a watch for so many years, I feel naked without this watch. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? I feel naked. So every morning I looked at it on the table and I thought, I could leave it laying there, I could put it on. Okay. I can't tell you. I mean, I would, I'm not exaggerating. If I said I looked at that watch a hundred times this past week, I did. I, and, and what would crack me up is I'd look at it and go, oh, it's 3.30, that's right. <laughs> and 10 minutes later, I have to go, oh, it's still 3. Oh, you, you, I'm telling you, because we're in the habit of doing these things. And so it is with the old covenant. We're in the habit of always looking back at the things we've learned and been taught as we go and we've read and stuff like that. Even though it doesn't work, we keep looking back at it. Quit looking at the Old Covenant as something that you've got to do to please God. You don't have to do anything at all to please God. Like I said, when I said, God, if I never preached another message, Daddy, are we okay? He said, Son, we are okay. And that fueled me to say, Daddy, I think I'll preach for the rest of my life. Here's what the Lord said. The helmet serves as one of the most vital pieces of the battle gear. It's not there to be pretty. It's there to protect. Yet many believers, spiritually speaking, are wearing cardboard helmets, especially if you're trying to operate under Old Covenant theology. When a believer doesn't understand what the gift of righteousness does, you'll walk around with exiled emotions and just crazy, crazy thoughts. I mean, runaway thoughts. The heartbeat of Triumphant Grace Ministry is really, first and foremost, just to reveal Jesus. Just to reveal Jesus, because we believe when you get a healthy image of what Jesus looks like, you'll get a healthy image of what you look like. And when you get a healthy image of what you look like with you and Jesus, you'll change the whole world. You'll change the whole world. This past week, I caught about five minutes of a documentary. It was about these cheetah cubs that were orphaned. And so instead of trying to marry it with another cheetah, you know what they did? They took and put it with surrogate Doberman pinchers. So you've got cheetah, you've got Doberman, you've got cat, you've got dog. And the Doberman was such a, a real docile Doberman, just real sweet. And the cheetah cubs were so cute, they're so little and they're so playful. And they're just on that Doberman and she's just laying there and taking it all. And it's climbing on the Doberman, but finally the Doberman has enough, okay? Playtime's over with. <laughs> And so the Doberman, it was almost like it was in slow motion. The Doberman opened her mouth real wide, 
grabs that little cheetah and pins it to the ground. Not to hurt it, but to say, listen, playtime's over with, I'm the boss. And then they fast forward in the documentary, the cheetahs are all grown now, it's been a year or two later, they're all grown. And they got the cheetahs and the Dobermans running around in this big pen. And when push came to shove and they had this encounter, the Doberman stood his ground and the cheetah cowered down to it. The cheetah backed down to the Doberman and walked away kind of backwards like this. If the cheetah only knew. Listen, it wasn't backing down because of love and respect. It was backing down because of something that had been put in its mind. He's the boss. He's the dominant one. He's the boss. It is that way right now, I'm telling you, with believers under the old covenant. We are cowering to the old covenant principles of God when we need to rise up and say, wait a minute. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I'm telling you, we don't have to keep backing down to some of these old covenant theologies. Now, when we talk about the the law, the commandments, it's not just the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is kind of where it started, but there are actually 613 laws between Exodus and Deuteronomy. 613 different laws. 365 of them are, don't do this. (laughs) Don't do this. 248 of these laws are positive laws that will say, listen, if you do this, it's going to go well for you. If you do this, it's going to go well for you. 613 laws altogether. And then as you watch it keep boiling down throughout the covenant, uh, throughout the different prophets in the Bible, finally it really boils down to one, and Jesus says love. That's what it really comes down to. It's just simply Love. Amen? Quit putting coins in obsolete meters. The enemy is continually delivering headshots to God's people, and it leaves them wounded, fractured, and calling for the stretcher. And many of the people are thrown in the towel when they should be thrown in the towel. Did you know that 50 pastors every day in the United States of America call it quits? That's one per state every day. Let me do the math for you. That's 1,500 pastors a month, 18,000 pastors a year. Say, I can't do this anymore. As I was thinking about that, what is doing this, God? They are allowing their enemies to take the dominant role. They don't understand who they are in Christ. And I said, what was the culprit that discouraged these pastors to make them call it quits? I believe it's the, it's the message. If the message doesn't have life, it doesn't have life for the past, it doesn't have life for the congregation, there's nothing for you to sustain your group. The shepherd's role is to lead his sheep beside still waters and into green pastures. The shepherd's role is to put a helmet of salvation on his sheep, the helmet that endures. The word helmet in the singular form, surfaces only eight times in the Bible. Six in the Old Testament, twice in the New Testament. I want to show you where it comes up for the very first time. The first time the word helmet is used is in the Bible is 1 Samuel chapter 17. Do you have any guesses who might be wearing this helmet? It's Goliath. The same creep that's responsible for taking 18,000 pastors out of their positions every single year in America. And without getting into the whole story of David and Goliath, because it's a big story, I want you to see the essence of it. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath. Remember that, Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. This guy is nine feet, nine inches tall. 
<laughs> That's a man. That's a big guy. Nine feet nine. And it says, and he had a helmet of brass. Brass. Upon his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. I did some research to figure out how much that was. That means his coat weighed about 125 pounds. Can you imagine picking up a coat? And like we pick up a coat, this guy is intimidating. A 125-pound coat just throws it on like it's nobody's business. I mean, he's intimidating. I'm not afraid of the enemy anymore. I'm not ashamed of the gospel anymore. It's the power of God, and the power of God lives inside of us. Amen? So Goliath of Gath. I want you to take his name and Gath and, and drop some letters off and bring them together. Goliath of Gath. You've got Gal Gath. Golgotha. Golgotha. I want you to see something here. In the Latin, it is Calvary Locus, which is where we get our English word Calvary. It's the hillside just outside of the gates of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. And it says in John 19, 17, talking about the crucifixion, and he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is in the Hebrew, Golgotha. Golgotha. Here's the deal. Brass or bronze, however they say it in the Bible, is always a picture of judgment. It's always a picture of condemnation. And Goliath is wearing a helmet of judgment. He's wearing a helmet of condemnation. Jesus was crucified at Golgotha. Jewish historians will tell you that they believe this is precisely where David buried the head of Goliath on Golgotha, just outside of the Jerusalem gates. See, when you look up Golgotha and you look at the image, it looks like a skull. You'll see the two eye sockets. It's just how the rock was formed. It looks like two eye sockets. It looks like a little bit of a nose. It looks like a little bit of a mouth. But the historians say that's exactly where David buried Goliath's head. We know that David brought the head back to Jerusalem. We know he brought it back so Saul could see it. And then he had to bury it somewhere. Jesus was crucified literally on the very hillside that David buried Goliath's head. Another way to say this now is Goliath head or the head of judgment, the head of condemnation was under the feet of Jesus. You get that picture in your mind. Amen. You don't have to be concerned about judgment and condemnation. I'm going to tell you something. You're going to live life to its fullness. You're going to live life free, fearless, flawless. We sang about them today. You're going to live life fearless. You're going to live life flawlessly before God when you figure out the head of condemnation has been buried under Jesus' feet. David has been sent to check on his brothers. His brothers are being intimidated by Goliath every single day. I want to show you the second time where the word helmet comes up. And so David, his father Jesse, has sent him to go check on his brothers. And when he gets there, he finds that nine foot nine inch uncircumcised Philistine spewing judgment and condemnation over God's people. <laughs> you know that's not going to go over well, right? And so in 1 Samuel chapter 17, in 30, verse 32, the Bible says, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. 
Saul replied, You are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, he says, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and then killed it. Friends, let me tell you something. There's something very supernatural here. Because the last time I checked, lions and bears and tigers and things like that don't grab a prey and then carry it away and kill it. They usually kill it, and then they carry it away. They don't want this prey fighting with them as they're trying to walk with it. So they'll kill their prey, and then they'll take it. Here's whatever it is. The lion or the bear has got a sheep in its mouth. It doesn't take much to kill a sheep. You can just about click them in the back of the head, and they're done. He's got it in his mouth, and it's still alive. There's something supernatural. And if you think about the supernatural goodness of God, I want to tell you something. When your enemy's trying to carry you away in your thoughts, when he's trying to carry you away in your emotions, when he's trying to carry you away in things concerning your body or your finances or whatever it may be, I want you to know something. There's a supernatural God that is trailing right behind, and he's coming after you to take you away from that enemy, crush that enemy and let you live. You know what's interesting about that, that particular scripture is David didn't even use the sling. He didn't use the sling. How can you use a sling if you got the bear or the, the lion by its mane? <laughs> it was the hand. And so I want you to know something. If David's hand, this was God's work, man cannot crush the skull of a lion with his hand. Understand, inside of you, if this was true about David, the Holy Spirit, like Steve said, was only on the people in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit's in us. You've got more power inside of you to crush that enemy in any situation that you're dealing with. Let's do it. Let's just do it, okay? Let's just show off, okay? Let's just show him how awesome our God is. I want you to stand up to whatever your enemy is, whatever's intimidating you, whatever your Goliath is, whatever's spewing judgment, whatever's spewing condemnation, and say, it's not going to be like that on my watch anymore. The greater one is living on the inside of me. Quit getting pushed around. But when you understand how what I'm talking about, how the covenants are connected and how your covenants are greater covenant, I'm going to tell you, you're going to rise up and say, whoa, wait a second here now. Life is awesome. Jesus is awesome. That powerful one is living on the inside of me. Verse 36, David is continuing to tell Saul. He says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Man, don't you love that confidence? I mean, don't you just love that confidence? Come on, let's start being confident. Let's start being confident everywhere we go. I'm not talking about being arrogant. I'm talking about being confident wherever you go and release the goodness of the Lord. Release the blessing of the Lord. Release His grace everywhere you go. Don't be worried about what people are going to think. I don't worry about what people think. I don't care if you put me in the middle of Walmart or where you put me at. I'm going to release the goodness of the Lord wherever I go because I understand He that lives in me can live in that person too. Oh, man, that gets me excited on the inside. <laughs> Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. He's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion. Did you see who he gave the credit to just now? You know, that would have been an awesome one to put that lion's head on your trophy case and say, look what I just did. 
I mean, most guys would do that, wouldn't they? Look what I just did. I used to have fish hanging on the wall. When I got saved, I find, I mean, I did that kind of stuff. And one time I had all my fish, I just took them off the wall, put them in garbage bags or gave them away and, and, and threw them away. I had trophies from, you know, playing pool in my younger days. They were all over the place. One day I just looked at all of them and, and I felt this, look what I did come up in me. I grabbed them all, put them in garbage bags and set them at the curb. And my kids said, Dad, why'd you do that? I said, that's not who I am anymore, son. That's who I was at one time. That was my identity. I wanted people to be afraid of me when they stepped to a pool table. I had learned that game and had mastered that game, but it's not who I am anymore. It's not who my identity is. My identity is hidden in Christ. So David said, hey, it was the Lord. The Lord did this. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. He's trying to sanction David doing this. In other words, he's feeling kind of confident. He's like, whoa, man. Do you see how confidence rubs off? Do you see how grace rubs off? Saul didn't feel that way when David first came in, but suddenly he's like, hey, go, the Lord will be with you. I guess that's what you're saying. He's going to be with you. I'm telling you, confidence breeds confidence. When we talk about this Jesus, let's not talk about him like we're wearing a cardboard helmet. Let's talk about him like we're wearing the helmet of salvation, the only helmet that endures. Let's tell the whole world about what we really have on the inside of us. Saul said, David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a helmet of brass. There it is again. Goliath was the first time, now David's got one on, helmet of brass, upon his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to it. David was probably just, you know, I mean, he's probably 5'3", five, 5'4". Five, he probably wasn't a real big guy. He got a 9 foot 9 armor on this little guy. I mean, it must have been hilarious to watch. I mean, I remember when we were little, man, my mom would roll our little cuffs up and stuff like Safety pin him, he'd feel like a dork, you know. I mean, David's walking around feeling like a dork. Really? You want me to go out in this stuff? And then he just says, he says, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. In 1998 or 1999, somewhere in that area, there was a gentleman that prophesied over me, and he told me, you'd, you'd serve in ministry one day, you'd serve as a pastor. And here's what he said to me. He said, you cannot wear the Saul armor. I had no idea what he was talking about. I was like three years old in Jesus at the time. He said, you're not going to be able to wear the Saul armor. The Saul armor? What are you talking about? This is what he's talking about. David said, hey, listen, I'm going to go in the name of the Lord. I don't need to go with all your junk. <laughs> he said, I can't go in these because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the stream. Remember what the number five represents in the Bible? Grace. Grace. See, somebody's been listening. He said, let me tell you what I can go in. I can't go with that, all that stuff that belongs to Saul, that Saul armor. But what I can go with is a rag and a rock. And I'll take that uncircumcised Philistine out. He said, I'm going to go, I'm going to choose five stones. It's always the number of grace. I'm going to take him out with grace because the grace of the Lord is on my life. So he chose five smooth stones from the stream put them in a pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. David's name in the Hebrew means beloved. That's what his name means, beloved. The helmet of brass represents judgment and condemnation. 
And I heard the Lord say to me a couple nights ago, it's not fitting for the believer. It's not fitting for the beloved. If you're walking around with judgment, if you're walking around with condemnation, realize it's not, it doesn't fit. It's not for us. We're God's beloved. David understood that in, in ways that all oh, had to be supernatural. I don't need this. I'm God's beloved. I don't need a cap of judgment on me, a cap of condemnation on me. It doesn't fit. You get it? Oh, it's right there. The helmet of salvation is what's fitting for God's beloved and the only helmet that will endure to the end. Let's look at another quick type and shadow. Numbers chapter 21, beginning at verse 4. This is where Moses has released the people from Egypt, and they're with him in the desert now. And everything went fine for a while. Then, see the word then is a spoiler, isn't it? Then the people of Israel returned to Mount Hor, and from there continued southward along the road to the Red Sea in order to go around the land of Edom. The people were very discouraged. They began to murmur against God and to complain against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They whined. I love that. There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this insipid food. You know the word insipid is dull? <laughs> it's bland. It's the kind of stuff they give you in the hospital. That's all insipid food, you know. They're calling this what God provided insipid. And I'm going to tell you something. What I felt the Lord say to me, there's people out there, and we hear them on television. We are almost really selective now who we really even watch. It's narrowed it way down because they start calling this message of grace some sort of license to sin. And you can't get me a quicker way to turn that TV off when you start doing that. I know of nobody like that's hearing the message of grace where you go, man, I got a license to sin. I can go sin as much as I want. Are you kidding me? The word insipid literally means unexciting, uninteresting, and boring. That's what they called that manna. All the Israelites knew was law. Now they literally had the grace of God providing everything for them, and they couldn't even appreciate it. I appreciate what God's doing for me. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among them to punish them, and many of them were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Jehovah and against you. Pray to him to take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. You notice Moses didn't pray for the snakes. He said, pray that the Lord take away the snakes. He prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, make a brass replica of these snakes and attach it to the top of the pole. What is this a picture of? It's a picture of the cross. This pole, it's a type and shadow of the cross. And it's a type and picture of our judgment and our condemnation being nailed to that pole. He says, make a brass replica of one of these snakes and attach it to the top of the pole. Anyone who is bitten shall live if he simply looks at it. Do you see how easy salvation is? You just look to Christ. You just look to Christ and you'll live. Even when you've been bitten by something poisonous, and there's nothing more poisonous than sin before you come to Christ, you're already on your way to death. But he says, all you have to do is look at Christ and you will live. So Moses made the replica, and whenever anyone who had been bitten looked at the brass snake, he lived. Did you notice? He didn't have to touch the snake. We can't tangibly touch Jesus. Not tangibly, anyway. He didn't have to touch it, didn't even have to speak to it. All he had to do was look at that serpent to live. Just look. This is a type and shadow again of our salvation. We look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith and our joy and our love. Oh my goodness. It's not by any form of works 
so that we cannot boast and brag about it. It's by faith and faith alone we keep looking to Jesus. Now, if one guy said, hey, you know what? I, I found a way to pole vault up and high five that snake. And, and because I was able to find something really clever to do, that's why I lived. No, that's not the way he set it up. That snake was way up on a pole, symbolizing Jesus himself taking our judgment. And he said, listen, all you have to do is look at that snake and you're going to live. Sin is still in the world, but its consequences have been done away for the believer. It's still in the world, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's still in the world. Consequences have been done away for the believer. Why? Because we have looked at Christ. We've looked at the one and only Son of God that we sang about Him this morning, the darling of heaven. And so we can stand and we can say, Oh grave, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's not there for the believer anymore. It's been taken away. Let's fast forward now to John, the Gospel of John, as I'm trying to wind this down. Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus. I love this conversation with Nicodemus, but let's get to the end of the conversation at verse 13. Jesus tells Nicodemus, he says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Now watch what Jesus skillfully does in verse 14. He points Nicodemus back to something that he would be familiar with. He was a Jew. He knew the law. He knew the books of the Old Testament. And so Jesus skillfully points him back to something. What is it going to be? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. I want you to get those words in your heart. Must be lifted up. So he was saying, hey, do you see what I'm about to tell you? Watch how it happened back then. I've already told you who I am. And when it happens to me, when the Son of Man has been lifted up, he said, then everyone who believes may have eternal life. And then he releases that most awesome verse of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, remember the words must be lifted up. Fast forward nine chapters into John chapter 12. Jesus is at that end of his ministry. He's about to be crucified. And in John chapter 12, beginning at verse 31, we find these words. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And then he uses the same words he told Nicodemus earlier. He says, And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Now, as my wife made the point a few messages ago, the word men is an italicized in your Bible. That means it was not originally there in the Greek. King James said, you know what? We've got to figure out who's going to be lifted up here. Who's going to be drawn to Jesus? So the only thing that makes sense is man. It's not the context, though. Jesus opened that verse by saying this. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. So he said, listen, if, if I am lifted up, if I'm lifted, if I'm nailed to a cross, he said, I'm going to draw all judgment to me, all condemnation to me, all your judgment, all my judgment, all your condemnation, all mine, everything that belonged to you, everything that belonged to me. He said, listen, if I get lifted up, he said, I'm going to draw that judgment to me. It makes sense. It makes sense in everything he was pointing Nicodemus to. Everything he came to tell us. He's drawn all the judgment. You don't have to walk under judgment. I'm going to tell you something. Judgment will tear you up. It will age you very quickly. 
I'm not walking in condemnation. I'm walking in the grace of God. And then the third time it comes up is simply this in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. The third time the word helmet comes up in the Bible. Isaiah 59, 17. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Steve, you were talking about that earlier about seeing Jesus with all the armor on. And in Ephesians chapter 6, it tells us to put on the whole armor of God, doesn't it? Amen. But in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, who are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Now listen, that word salvation is an awesome word. It's an awesome word. Here's the word. Maybe you're going to think it sounds a little familiar. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew word right there, when you look at it, is the word Yeshua. Does that sound familiar? Yeshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. It's the Hebrew name for Jesus. And he said there, he said, the helmet of salvation on his head. It's the helmet of Jesus on our head. It's the helmet of salvation, the helmet of Yeshua on our head. Oh, my goodness. It's the helmet of salvation, the helmet that endures. Years ago, in the, in the late 1990s, I bought a book called The Signature of God by Grant Jeffrey. I love that book. But it proved over and over that the Bible was accurate, that it was written under the inspiration of God, and you could trust the Bible. And I love this. What they did is they did interval spacing. Hebrew reads from right to left with no spaces. And so what they did from the very first scripture of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. They took the very first word, which is technically in the Hebrew, beginning. Forget the end of stuff. Beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And they counted in five letters and they found the letter, Hebrew letter, Yod. And they pulled that letter out. And then through massive computers, they were able to do this and find this, the sequence. They fast-forwarded, they counted the letters, 521 letters, and pulled that letter out. 521 letters and pulled that letter out. 521 letters and pulled that letter out. Do you know what they found out through Genesis over and over by doing that without a single miss? It said, Yeshua is my name. Yeshua is able. Oh, man, that gives me chills when I think about that. Because they got a bunch of mathematicians involved. They said, look what we found, just kind of with a computer. This is amazing. And the mathematicians looked at it and they said, wow. They said, let me tell you the odds of this happening by random chance. Now listen to me very carefully. They said it's 1 in 50 quadrillion. Let me help you with that number real quick. It's millions, billions, trillions, quadrillions. If you took $100 bills and you stacked them one on top of the other, if you were only looking to meet one quadrillion, it would reach more than 800,000 miles into the sky. You can trust the Bible. You can trust God's Word. Jesus in there. In fact, what they did is they took every messianic prophecy of the Old Testament, there's a number of them, and every time they looked and took a messianic prophecy, they found the same thing happen. Sometimes it was every fourth letter, every tenth letter, every twentieth letter, but it always kept saying, Yeshua is my name. Phenomenal! Phenomenal! And this helmet of Yeshua has been placed on me. This helmet of Yeshua has been placed on you. This is very, very good news that a God with a mind like that 
says, you know what? Let me put a helmet of salvation on you and a robe of righteousness. And so Acts chapter 4 makes total sense in verse 12 when it says, Neither is there any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except that name of Jesus. My closing scriptures. The Apostle Paul is finally closing out Romans, and in chapter 16, verses 17 through 20, he says this. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. What is he saying? I taught you. I gave you the word. And my word was about grace. My word was about God's love. My word was about righteousness. And he said, watch out because there's going to be people that are going to come along and they're going to say, hey, this message of unconditional love, this message of God's great grace, oh man, I don't know, that's too good to be true. And the Apostle Paul, he told us in advance, he said, watch out for him. Somebody's going to come along and say, the stuff that you learned is not true. I'm telling you by the word of God, it is true. It is true. Let every man be a liar, but God is true. He says, keep away from them. Because I'm going to tell you something. As much as the message of grace is working in your heart, it doesn't take very long for someone to undo it if you don't take a stand. That's why when my friend called me the other night, I said, wait a minute, no, no, wait a second, no. I'm going to tell you what the word says. If it costs us our friendship, it costs us our friendship. I'm going to take a stand for the word, okay? Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And then he ends it by saying this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He already crushed him under his feet. But when you get this revelation of his grace and his peace, I'm going to tell you something. It crushes him all the more under your feet. We used to sing that song in church. It seemed like it would never end. He's under my feet. He's under. I mean, we would just sing like for an hour. You know, it, oh man, he's under our feet. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. He started by saying, the God of peace and the God of grace. And right between the God of peace and the God of grace, he sandwiched Satan getting his head crushed. You see, the God of peace and the God of grace is what Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 are all about. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Satan is under your feet. I'm telling you, you better wake up and realize he is under your feet. Friends, we are no longer concerned with judgment or condemnation because according to Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation, that's the helmet of Yeshua, on his head. Jesus is the helmet of our salvation. He is the helmet that endures. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I have stood here and I have preached it exactly the way you gave it to me, Father. And Father, I thank you that even beyond this room, our internet presence, the people will get this message of how good our daddy is. I want to tell the whole world, Father, how good you are, Father. So Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is Yeshua to us. He's the helmet of our salvation. He's the one that endures. I want to thank you that our salvation is an enduring salvation. It's not here one moment and there another based on our performance, but it is true to the very end. 
You said that you were the author and the finisher of the very substance that saves us, and that's faith. The author and the finisher of our faith. So, Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for your grace, and I thank you for peace. Amen.